Hello, welcome to another episode of The Mod Pod. Thanks for tuning in. You are about to be rewarded with four hand-selected articles from the May issue of Modern Optometry. In this episode, we've decided to load you up with three articles from our dry eye cover focus, then wrap things up with a useful article on OD-MD communication from Mod's collaborative eye section. Without any further ado, here's Miele Brujic from Premier Vision Group in Bowling Green, Ohio, with his article explaining how to take your dry eye care to the next level. My appreciation and passion for actively identifying and managing dry eye disease developed more than a decade ago, out of necessity. I saw a new patient, a 42-year-old woman, who complained of reduced near vision through her glasses. I examined her and prescribed her first pair of progressive edition glasses. One month after these glasses were dispensed, she appeared on my schedule for a prescription check. At that follow-up visit, she said she felt something was wrong with the prescription in her new glasses. When I checked her vision through the new glasses, I noted that she was blinking to clear her vision. As I saw her doing this, I asked whether she felt like she had to do this frequently to clear her vision, and she responded that she had to do this all the time. I proceeded to the slit lamp evaluation after instilling fluorescein using a cobalt blue light and a Rattan number 12 filter. The nature of her complaint quickly became evident as her tear film began breaking up almost immediately after she blinked. I realized then that I needed to put a process in place to help avoid undiagnosed dry eye affecting my patient's vision with their new glasses. The last thing that I wanted was to have someone walk out of our office not seeing as well as he or she should because of an underlying dry eye problem that was missed. I immediately put a process in place to actively identify patients with dry eye through application of fluorescein on every patient at every encounter. Since then, the process has evolved in this era of new diagnostic technologies. I feel that it's crucial to care appropriately for patients with dry eye, and ultimately this involves identifying these individuals. Although processes will vary between offices, I believe practitioners should consider putting together a protocol to help identify these patients. If we simply wait to hear the classic complaint that my eyes burn, we will miss a number of individuals who need our help. In this article, I review several diagnostic measures, excluding standardized questionnaires that we use to monitor treatment success or failure. The goal of these diagnostic tests and of physical examination is to gather information to determine the cause and effect of dry eye in order to put an appropriate active plan in place. Keep in mind that many of these strategies can be employed immediately in your office with the diagnostics and equipment that you already have. Early evidence of inflammation can often be seen as paler around the base of the lash hair follicle and is sometimes an elevation at the base of the lash known as a volcano sign. This is suggestive of inflammation in the hair follicle and it can be a precursor to dry eye symptoms. We must also be cognizant of deposits and collarettes at the base of the lashes. Both of these findings are best viewed at the slit lamp under high magnification. Under low magnification, they can often be missed. Additionally, be mindful of loss of lashes, which can arise secondary to chronic inflammation. The clinician should look for eyelid margin thickening and visible inflammation. Examination of the meibomian orifices is also critical. There can be pouting of the meibomian gland orifices in eyes with long-term meibomian gland dysfunction. Make sure to assess the lid margins for appropriate meibomian gland secretions. The most common way to perform this assessment is by placing gentle pressure along the anterior surface of the lid margin. This can be done by either gently pressing along the lid margin with the finger 
or in a controlled way utilizing the meibomian gland evaluator. The meibomian glands can be assessed several different ways depending on the technology you have in your practice. The structure of the glands along the lower lid can be viewed by pulling the lower lid down and viewing the palpebral conjunctiva with the naked eye. The meibomian gland structure can also be assessed at the slit lamp with eyelid transillumination. In this technique, the transilluminator is used to pull the lower eyelid down as its light shines through the lid. The palpebral conjunctival surface can then be viewed with the light from the transilluminator as the only light source. The meibomian glands can also be viewed using infrared technology. This approach leverages the fact that meibomian glands are metabolically active or more active than the surrounding tissues, causing them to appear a lighter color. All three of these techniques provide visualization of the meibomian glands to allow determination of whether there is any dropout. Fluorescein installation is a part of every ocular surface assessment I perform. The reason for this is that it provides a tremendous amount of information. The key to optimally observing fluorescein after it is applied to the ocular surface is to view it with a cobalt blue light and a Rattan number 12 filter. The first assessment made after installation is tear breakup time. A normal tear breakup time should be about 10 seconds or more. After T-bud is assessed, the presence of corneal and bulbar con conjunctival staining can be assessed. In a normal eye, no corneal staining should be evident. The tear meniscus is also easily viewed when fluorescein is placed on the eye. A healthy tear meniscus is usually 0.3 millimeters above the lid margin. Additionally, it is easy to see if there are any irregularities in the lid margin. Another important clinical marker that can be viewed with fluorescein is lid wiper epitheliopathy. In order to understand lid wiper epitheliopathy, it is important to understand the anatomy of the lid wiper area. The lid wiper area is the small area on the posterior surface of the upper eyelid that wipes along the ocular surface during the blink. Additional friction along the lid wiper area will result in tissue irritation leading to fluorescein absorption into the lid wiper area. When staining is present on the lid wiper area, it is referred to as lid wiper epitheliopathy. Be cognizant of the line of marks an anatomical structure that in normal eyes will stain with fluorescein. The line of marks is where the keratinized epithelium of the anterior eyelid margin meets the mucous membrane of the palpebral conjunctiva. The anterior margin of the lid wiper area is the line of marks. The level of lid wiper epitheliopathy is graded based on the horizontal width and the sagittal depth of the stain that absorbs in the lid wiper area. Then these two levels are averaged to arrive at a final lid wiper epitheliopathy severity. Lid wiper epitheliopathy can also be evaluated with lysamine green or rose bengal staining. Tear osmolarity is a measure of the concentration of solutes in the tear film. In a patient with dry eye, tear film osmolarity increases. As the quality of the tear film is normalized, osmolarity decreases. In-office testing with the inflammadry assay measures the level of matrix metalloproteinase 9 in the tear film. Sensitivity of the test detects levels of MMP9 at 40 nanograms per milliliter and higher. MMP9 levels lower than 40 nanograms per milliliter are considered to be in the normal range. As the level of MMP9 in the tear film increases, 
the positive signal strength will increase in intensity. Setting a protocol in place to help identify patients with dry eye is crucial to patient satisfaction. An appropriate protocol will help to optimize your chances of identifying this condition in the patients in your practice. With a protocol in place to actively identify this condition, you will take your dry eye practice to the next level. If you've dealt with patients with dry eye and other ocular surface diseases for whom alternative treatment options have been ineffective, then this next article is for you. Listen as Melissa Barnett of UC Davis Health in Sacramento reads her article, Treating Ocular Surface Disease with Scleral Lenses. The popularity of scleral lenses is colossal among specialty contact lens practices, and it continues to grow in general optometric practices. Rigid contact lens prescriptions compose 10% of all contact lens fits based on data obtained from male or electronic survey forms from 20,000 fits across 30 markets. The functions of scleral lenses can be broken into three major categories, restoration and support of the ocular surface, visual rehabilitation and correction of irregular astigmatism, and pain attenuation. Preservative-free saline is deposited in the bowl of the lens to continuously bathe, protect, and restore the ocular surface via the post-lens tear reservoir. Scleral lenses have large diameters. They vault the cornea and limbus and gently land on the scleral conjunctiva. Symptoms of dry eye disease include ocular dryness, grittiness, foreign body sensation, debilitating pain, photophobia, visual fluctuation, and visual distortion. Multiple studies have demonstrated that dry eye disease can negatively affect a patient's quality of life. Although dry eye disease is increasingly prevalent, the condition is never diagnosed or treated in many patients, translating into a massive untapped market. Where should scleral lenses fit into the dry eye treatment protocol. Scleral lenses should not be the primary therapy for patients who have mild to moderate dry eye disease without systemic comorbidities. Conventional treatment options should be tried first, including environmental modifications, preservative-free eye drops, prescription dry eye medications, eyelid hygiene, nighttime lubrication or goggles, and punctal occlusion. When conventional treatments are insufficient, scleral lenses are a viable management option for patients with dry eye. In addition, scleral lenses have been indicated for the treatment of conditions that are associated with neuropathic ocular pain. According to the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society, TFOS, Dry Eye Workshop 2, DUES 2, there is increasingly appreciation that daily wear of a rigid gas permeable scleral lens may play an important role in the management of moderate to severe dry eye disease. The TFOS dues to report positions scleral lenses as a tertiary therapy. After prescription medications and overnight treatments, such as ointment or moisture goggles, and before the long-term use of steroids, amniotic membrane grafts, surgical punctal occlusion, or other surgical procedures such as tarsorophy or salivary gland transplantation. Additional step three therapies include oral secretologues, 
autologous allogenic serum, eye drops, and soft bandage contact lenses. Therapeutic scleral lens indications for ocular surface disease include dry eye disease syndrome, exposure keratitis, neurotrophic keratitis, graft-versus-host disease, Steven Johnson syndrome, ocular cicatricial pemphigoid, chemical burns, limbal stem cell deficiency, Sjogren's syndrome, and other systemic autoimmune diseases and persistent epithelial defects. Scleral lenses can be used for corneas that have a regular, normal, prolate shape and no disease, ectasia, or irregularities. They may be coexisting conditions, such as ocular surface disease, including dry eye disease. Scleral lenses may be an option if a patient is experiencing reduced vision or comfort with conventional contact lenses. According to TFOS, the reason for a contact lens dropout are multifactorial. Discomfort that eventually leads to contact lens dropout may be due to the contact lens, environmental factors, or both. Numerous publications have established that the rate of contact lens dropout ranges from 15% to more than 20%. If vision, comfort, or both are not optimal with the patient's current contact lens modality, scleral lenses are an option. Patients with dry eye disease and refractive errors, such as myopia, regular astigmatism, hyperopia, and presbyopia may be ideal candidates for this modality. Transitioning a patient from other contact lens modalities to scleral lenses generally improves the contact lens experience for patients. A prospective cross-sectional study published in Contact Lens Anterior Eye evaluated existing contact lens patients fit with scleral lenses based on a lens selection algorithm. Overall satisfaction was high in the scleral lens group, more than 70 out of 100 for 81% of the patients, N equals 38. In a study of healthy patients without corneal pathology, patients preferred the performance of a scleral lens, spherical or front surface toric, compared to previously worn soft toric or gas permeable contact lenses including patients with no prior history of contact lens wear. Scleral lenses are ideal for presbyopic patients who often have concomitant dry eye disease. A variety of multifocal scleral lens designs are available, such as aspheric, center distance, center near, and center progressive. Multifocal scleral lenses can be fit to correct irregular astigmatism, because the fluid reservoir neutralizes corneal irregularities. Among patients with normal corneas, ideal candidates for scleral lenses are individuals who have astigmatism and experience fluctuating vision with soft toric lenses, presbyopic patients with dry eye disease who wish to continue wearing contact lenses, and contact lens wearers who experience ocular dryness with their existing lenses. Patients who have ocular surface disease and other conditions, such as ocular rosacea and meibomian gland dysfunction, are susceptible to fogging of the anterior surface of the scleral lens. Those with exposure keratopathy after procedures, such as ptosis repair, blepharoplasty, and injections of Botox, and patients who have experienced a stroke or who have nerve palsy may not close their eyes completely resulting in a dry, exposed lens surface.
Makeup and skin creams can also contribute to anterior scleral lens debris and fogging. Conventional management options for anterior scleral lens fogging are increased lubrication with preservative-free artificial tears throughout the day and removal, manual cleaning, rinsing, and reapplication of the lenses. A squeegee technique with on-eye surface cleaning may also be used. With this strategy, a lens inserter or remover is moistened with saline and rubbed across the lens surface to eliminate debris, similar to cleaning the windshield of a car to remove debris. Hydrogen peroxide solutions, alcohol-based cleaners, enzymatic cleaners, and extra strength cleaners, such as Menacom Progent, are other options for removing surface debris. Tangible Hydropeg is a novel surface treatment that is 90% water and 10% polyethylene glycol. It permanently bonds to the surface of the contact lens upon application. Hydropeg shields the lens from the ocular surface and tear film, minimizing friction and deposition, improves lens wettability, tear film breakup time, and deposit resistance, and ultimately enhances patient comfort. A poster recently presented at the Global Specialty Lens Symposium compared lens comfort and symptoms of dry eye disease among scleral lens wearers fit with hydropeg treated lenses and those fit with untreated scleral lenses. Investigators assessed dry eye disease signs, comfortable lens wearing time, quality of vision, and lens-related changes to the ocular surface. Patients with treated scleral lenses experienced greater comfort and improved dry eye symptoms compared to those with untreated lenses. Ocular surface changes and the frequency of foggy vision were reduced in the group with treated lenses. The investigators concluded that Hydropeg is an effective technology that may improve outcomes for scleral lens wearers who have dry eye disease. More information on scleral lenses is available from the Scleral Lens Education Society, sclerallens.org, and the Gas Permeable Lens Institute, gpli.info. For additional resource suggestions, a book dedicated to scleral lenses with unique perspectives and contributions from international scleral lens experts titled Contemporary Scleral Lenses Theory and Application, edited by Lynette Johns and myself, is available from Bentham Science or Amazon. The Clinical Guide for Scleral Lens Success by Dottie Fidel and myself is a hands-on practical resource to use daily in clinical practice. A Guide to Scleral Lens Fitting, version 2.0, updated in 2015 by Afe Vanderwarp, may be downloaded from the Pacific University website. Scleral Lens Fit Scales is a guide to estimating clearance. It is available in English and Spanish and may be downloaded from Ferris State University. Scleral Lens Education is also available at most major meetings. Because scleral lenses protect and bathe the ocular surface, they can be a good option for patients with dry eye. Rounding out our dry eye content, let's find out from Mod Co-Chief Medical Editor Leslie O'Dell why beauty products are not as harmless as they seem. Here she is with the article, Cosmetic Use and Dry Eye, which she wrote with Amy Gallant-Sullivan, 
Executive Director, Co-Founder, and Board Member of the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society, and Laura Perryman, Director of Dry Eye Services and Clinical Research at Evergreen Eye Center in Seattle. According to market research, roughly 66% of women regularly use eye makeup, particularly eyeliner and mascara, which are applied within close proximity to the meibomian glands and ocular surface. Other commonly used cosmetics include creams, concealers, and eyeshadows that are applied directly onto the eyelids and can be absorbed into the delicate eyelid skin or flake into the eye and tear film. Furthermore, makeup removers are often used around the eye, where they can leach into the tear film. Many of these types of products are toxic to the human ocular surface and agnexa cells. Every eye care provider should be well-versed in the beauty practices of his or her patients as the suspected correlation between eye health and makeup use is on the rise. Remember the laws that govern the cosmetic industry are 81 years old, established in 1938 by the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It is also important to note that the men's beauty market has grown and is considered to be among the best performing segments of personal care industry. Below is a brief rundown of the many ways that cosmetics can contribute to dry eye and related conditions. Application of cosmetics to the eye can contribute to corneal nerve irritation, dendritic cell activation, hyperosmolarity of the tear film, meibomian gland dysfunction, and tear film instability, along with symptoms of dry eye. The eyelid margin is an area of great concern with regard to overall tear film stability and ocular health. Yet current beauty trends recommend that this is the perfect place to apply eyeliner. Most patients are unaware that the eyelid margins contain the meibomian gland terminal ductules, which are important oil gland openings for delivering protective oils to the tear film. However, trending makeup application techniques such as water lining or tight lining often block meibomian gland orifices and introduce chemicals that may interfere with ocular health. Eyeliner applied on the inner portion of the lash line has been shown to migrate into the eye 15 to 30% of the time. Patient education is paramount in changing this ubiquitous and harmful beauty trend. Other aspects of eye makeup such as estrogenic active ingredients and toxic preservatives can contribute to localized endocrine modulation and result in a phenotypic dysregulation of the meibomian glands and the epithelia that are necessary for producing quality tears. Another omnipresent ocular surface threat is the recent obsession with long eyelashes. In reality, unnaturally long eyelashes pose a risk for dry eye disease. Normal eyelash length is one-third of the width of the eye opening, enabling optimized ocular surface protection from allergen, dusts, debris, and airflow. When the eyelashes are abnormally lengthened, this important protective mechanism is lost. Eye makeup can throw eye care providers off during an examination. Eyeliner, mascara, and eyeshadow can mask or mimic blepharitis. Eyelashes covered in mascara can mask evidence of demodex infestation. Eyeliner on the lid margin can mask evidence of ocular rosacea, telangiectasias, and mask meibomian fluid abnormalities or gland dysfunction. Use of false eyelashes is yet another area of concern. The glue used to adhere the false lash to the existing lash has been associated with contact dermatitis, 
allergic reactions, and inflammation that can exacerbate blepharitis. Also, proper lid cleaning is often not performed by people with false eyelashes due to the fear of lash loss, leaving a breeding ground for bacteria, fungus, and even demodex. Eyelash adhesives are cyanoacrylate-like adhesives that often contain methacrylate volatile organic compounds and the well-known preservative and ocular irritant formaldehyde. The chemical cocktails used in many ocular cosmetics add to the risk of allergy for our patients, often presenting as contact or atopic dermatitis. Additionally, these chemicals can leach into the ocular surface during applications, creating a chemical conjunctivitis or chemical keratitis. Even nail polish and acrylic fingernails can cause chronic dermatitis in patients because many contain high levels of volatile organic compounds and formaldehyde. Complication of skin and eye products can also be related to allergy or toxicity. Creams and cosmetics used in beauty routines are often applied around the eyes and vitamin A, retinoids, and parabens present in these formulations can have negative effects. These ingredients have been shown to cause significant toxicity to human meibomian gland cells in culture. And this is suspected to contribute to meibomian gland dysfunction and atrophy, and therefore potentially to dry eye disease. Eyelash tinting and dyeing has been associated with severe conjunctival reactions, swelling, watering, and acute inflammation secondary to chemical toxicities, and allergic reactions to the chemicals and dyes used around the eyes. Additionally, hydroxysynanimates, a class of aromic acids or plant-based oils known to directly activate transient receptor potential channels on nerve and immune systems, which may result in upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-1b, interleukin-4, interleukin-16, and neurotransmitters involved in pain and itch signaling. Mascara can be mechanically and chemically irritating as it flakes into the tear film. For contact lens wearers, these flakes can become trapped under a lens, causing corneal erosion. Many pigments used in eye makeup are non-dissolving, and hard particulates can become lodged under a contact lens and scratch an unprotective ocular surface. Our patients' beauty practices can wreak havoc on the ocular surface, and labels such as plant-based, natural, organic, vegan, and ophthalmologist-tested do not equate to ocular surface safety. Eye care practitioners need to be aware of the potential adverse effects associated with the use of eye cosmetics and anti-aging products. Educate yourself about the latest trends and discuss beauty routines with your patients regardless of their gender. For information on beauty blenders, chemicals to avoid, and beauty habits to recommend, visit dryeyediva.com. Ready to hear about common areas in which miscommunication can occur and how to improve it? Our final featured article, Avoiding Communication Breakdown, is read by Casey Claypool and was written by Dr. Claypool and Mark Contos, both from Empire Eye Physicians in Spokane, Washington. Collaborative care is all about communication. Communication between ophthalmologist and optometrist, communication between patients and doctors, and communication between office staffs are all critical to successful collaboration. However, it's all too easy for a misstep to occur in the various routes of communication among these groups. The OD might say something inaccurate to the patient about surgical options, or the patient could misunderstand a comment the surgeon makes about a particular lens choice for surgery. 
It doesn't take much to create a problem in what can already be a complex chain of interactions. Following are some examples of scenarios where miscommunication might easily occur in today's world of collaborative care. In a discussion of cataract surgery options, the optometrist says to a patient, Mrs. Smith, there are some lenses used in cataract surgery that can give you both distance and near vision, but they don't work well and they cost too much. Meanwhile, across town, the surgeon thinks, some of my happiest patients have presbyopia-correcting lenses. Does he not want to bother, or is he worried about losing the glasses sale? In the dark ages, about five years ago, many optometrists would shy away from multifocal IOLs because they were tired of receiving complaints of glare, halo, and poor intermediate vision for computer work in patients who returned to their practice after cataract surgery. The headache of dealing with their patients' visual side effects soured their perception of advanced IOLs. The advent of low-ad multifocals and extended depth of focus lenses gave us a fantastic way to meet the visual needs of our technology-savvy cataract patients. With EDOF lenses, patients experience less glare and better intermediate vision for activities on the computer. As for that glasses sale, patients still often need a prescription for small print at near, and they can take advantage of the glasses benefit on their insurance policy for that. Sometimes, however, there may be incorrect beliefs or myths floating around among referring optometrists. Some may overstate the benefits of a particular presbyopia-correcting lens, for example. We tell patients that our goal is to minimize dependence on glasses, not eliminate them entirely. There are many variables that can affect refractive results, we say. If patients go into surgery with the right expectations, the likelihood is high that they will be pleased with the results. An optometrist sees a new patient with visually significant cataracts and moderate dry eye syndrome and refers the patient to the surgeons for treatment. The surgeon, thinking that the OD can manage the dry eye postoperatively, proceeds with surgery without much discussion of the condition with the patient. After surgery, the unhappy patient tells the referring OD that her vision is no better than before. This is a hot topic right now in refractive cataract surgery. We are now all aware that tear film abnormalities can greatly affect cataract surgical outcomes. In the FACO study, Trattler et al. found that 77% of patients presenting for cataract surgery had grade 2 or greater dry eye disease. And we know from a study by Epitropolis et al. that dry eye disease is associated with a greater percentage of IOL power calculation errors greater than one diopter. This is why we see refractive surprises, as biometry readings can vary greatly in patients with dry eyes. Many patients are mildly symptomatic, however, and it can be difficult to convince them to delay surgery when they desire immediate removal of their cataracts. Treating dry eye even slightly before surgery is crucial to increase the likelihood of a satisfied patient postoperatively. But the job is not yet done. We now have advanced dry eye diagnostic testing methods, including measurement of tear osmolarity and certain inflammatory markers, allowing us to identify meibomian gland function and atrophy both preoperatively and postoperatively. As a result, we have become aware that even in an eye treated preoperatively for dry eye, Cataract surgery and its associated topical drop therapy tips the scale back toward dry eye postoperatively. On an already fragile ocular surface, this may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. When patients become increasingly symptomatic after surgery, it is likely that their meibomian gland dysfunction and ocular surface disease were pre-existing preoperatively. 
Therefore, we have found that it is helpful to educate patients and initiate therapy targeted to the patient's specific needs prior to cataract surgery. About a year ago, a patient presented to our clinic for a second opinion, begging us to remove her toric IOL. It had been inserted two years prior at another practice and the patient was in misery. She believed that her toric lens was creating fluctuating smeary vision that she could not get to stay clear. She had seen five different surgeons in that other practice but had been offered only topical lubrication as a treatment option. We performed our standard dry eye workup and informed the patient that her meibomian glands were blocked and that this was creating much of the symptoms she was experiencing. We performed vector thermal pulsation and encouraged her to return two months later. At that follow-up visit, she was in tears, grateful that her vision had finally cleared and stayed clear. We have had multiple patient encounters like this, highlighting the importance of identifying and treating ocular surface disease early in the surgical pathway. We are fortunate to live at a time when collaboration between ophthalmologists and optometrists continues to grow. Communication is crucial, and with the rapidly changing landscape of surgical ophthalmologic management, it is important for referring optometrists to correctly inform patients so that misinformation and miscommunication are minimized. Ophthalmologists love it when referring optometrists shadow us at our surgical centers. This activity provides them with continuing education credits and allows them to ask questions one-on-one -on -one regarding surgical options. It also fosters trust and open communication toward our mutual goal of improving and restoring visual function in our shared patients. Rate, review, and subscribe to The Mod Pod on whatever platform you get your podcasts. To those of you who embrace social media, come find us on Instagram and Twitter at Mod Optometry, on Facebook at Mod Optom, and on LinkedIn at Modern Optometry. One last thing, the Mod Squad will be in St. Louis next month for AOA, so keep a lookout for us or stop by our booth.